Hello, you're listening to Bible Truth Feed, the podcast for Christadelphians and those seeking the truth of the Bible. I have a lovely episode for you now. It's called The Clash of Kings, and it's based on the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. The presenter in this episode is our friend and brother Neville Clark, who meets with the Christadelphians at the Tea Tree Gully Ecclesia in Australia. The most detailed prophecy in the Bible begins with ancient Persia, predicts conflicts between the Greek kings whose territories was north and south of the Holy Land, and sweeps onto the coming conflict that is now brewing in the Middle East. Russia is gaining control of territories ruled long ago by the King of the North, an ominous sign that the last section of the prophecy will soon be fulfilled. It really is a wake-up call for those who long for the intervention of Jesus Christ and his saints to take control of this world and establish God's kingdom upon the earth with its centre based in Jerusalem. So this talk is about 58 minutes long and as I say it's based on Daniel chapter 11. It was given to the um, Sydney young people um, in their special efforts which is sypadelaide.com if you want to see more of their material. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, it's a fascinating study. It's a fascinating prophecy. And uh, what we would like is to hear your comments and thoughts about anything that you, you hear. And please leave us a message if you wish and we'll do our best to listen to them and publish them. But until next time, may God bless you in your studies. See you soon. God bless. Daniel 11. Would have to be one of the greatest chapters of prophecy in the Bible. When it comes, if you think about it like this, when it comes to proving the inspiration of the Bible to an interested friend, you might pick Daniel chapter 2. It's not a very difficult chapter to explain or to understand, and it clearly proves the inspiration of the Bible because it foretells events uh, thousands of years before they actually occurred. But if you want to take those discussions to the next level, you'd have to use Daniel chapter 11. I don't think there can be any doubt this would be the most detailed prophecy in the Bible. And I'm going to show you that this evening. But in addition to being the most detailed, it's also an extremely relevant chapter to us, as you will glean as we read the last, what, six verses of this chapter. Verses 40 to 45 are verses that happen in the last days, which therefore affects us, because we're living in the last days. So these are verses that relate to the forthcoming battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. So in addition to it being extremely detailed and a classic proof of inspiration, it's also, in that sense, a prophecy for us. So what does the chapter look like? Now, it's a long chapter, which is why we didn't read it all, but that also means I can't go through every verse of this chapter. So I'm going to deal with verses 1 to 9 and verses 40 to 45 and miss out the rest. However, for those who are interested, I gave Mitch three A4 handouts, which cover all of the verses 
of Daniel chapter 11. So for the verses I miss out, you can contact him to get the handouts and he can email those to you. So here's the structure. This is the story. It's a historical story, of course, uh, of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. The first four verses, the introductory verses, if you like, cover a short period of history about the kings of Persia and the rise of Greece under Alexander the Great. But by by far the major section you can see from verses 5 through 32, we've named the Hellenistic period. That is, the period after Alexander's death where the empire was split, the Greek empire that is, was split between his four generals and they warred between each other. Two in particular of those generals are called in this chapter the king of the north and the king of the south, by which it simply means north and south with relation to Israel. And it's because they fought each other back and forth across the land of Israel that the people of God are very interested in it because it affected them, and that's why such a large section of the chapter is devoted to that period of history. And then the Hasmonean period, because what happened as a result of the Greek kings attacking Israel, that the Jews responded. I'm not going to talk about it this evening, but the Hasmonean period is the period of the Maccabees. And these are the Maccabean wars led by Judas Maccabeus against the Greek army of Antiochus Epiphanes in about 160 BC. And then the Roman period. Now the Romans, of course, followed the Greeks in their control of the land of Israel, But the Roman period that is spoken of between verses 36 and 39 of this chapter is really the period in relation to Constantine. So whilst Rome began in about 64 BC to control Judea, Constantine was about 300 AD. Now I'm not going to cover this period either. The simple point is, however, that as you read verses 36 to 39, you read about the fact that false Christianity was implanted into the Roman Empire. That's what it's speaking about there, and that happened under the, under the rule of Constantine because he was the first Christian Roman emperor. And then, of course, verse 40 onwards, the epoch of the last days, which I've got commencing here in 1917 for reasons that I'll show you when we get there. So that's the structure of Daniel chapter 11. And as you can see, the major focus is the Hellenistic period because that's the largest slab of verses Uh, The wars between the king of the north and the king of the south, which invariably involved the land of Israel, because that was the land uh, dividing the north and the south, as we shall soon see. Okay, verse 1. Also, I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. Now, who's the I? Who is it that's doing this? Well, it's an angel. And it appears most likely, though he's not named here, that it, in fact, is the angel Gabriel. It's because Gabriel is the angel that has had a lot to do with Daniel in the preceding chapters. You'll read Gabriel's name, actually, in chapter 8, verse 16, chapter 9, verse 21. So this is the angel that's been talking to Daniel throughout these chapters. Well, it's most likely Gabriel speaking to Daniel here as well. And it's happening in the first year of Darius the Mede. That is the first year of the Persian Empire, 538-539 BC. Babylon's just fallen, and the Persians have taken over. Darius the Mede was the father-in-law of Cyrus the Great. So there was a sort of a co-regency 
But until the father-in-law died, which he did two years into his reign, uh, it was the Medes that ruled, not the Persians, of the Medo-Persian Empire. And now, says Gabriel, Daniel, I'm going to show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Three kings would stand up. Well, verse 1 tells us it's the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, and Darius, as I mentioned, was co-regent with his son-in-law, Cyrus the Persian. So Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian, are holding hands, ruling the, Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire as it commences. But after Cyrus, three more kings would stand up. They would be a fellow called Cambyses, followed by a fellow called Smyrdas, followed by Darius Hystaspes, often called Darius the Great, a very famous Persian king. And after those three, the fourth shall be far richer than they all. This is King Xerxes, the husband of Esther. Far richer than they all, and by his strength and through his riches, he's going to attack Greece. Now, what happened? Well, the reason he was far richer was because, of course, he inherited all the accumulated wealth of his predecessors. Cyrus took Babylon. Cambyses, the next king, added Egypt. Darius Hystaspes formalised taxation and broke the entire empire into provinces, which the Persians called satrapies. Xerxes inherited all that. Now, Xerxes' father, Darius Hystaspes, actually attacked Greece in 490 BC, but he lost the Greek campaign at the Battle of Marathon. Marathon, you'll recognise as an English word, and the reason we, the, the reason the what the 42-kilometre race is called a marathon, is because when Darius Hystaspes attacked Greece, the Greeks were in trouble, and a fellow called Phaedipides ran from from the city of Marathon to Athens to quickly get help. So he ran. The, he was a professional runner. They had messengers. There was no email. He ran the 42 k's, gave the message, and died. But the Persians lost the battle. And so when Darius Hystaspes died, he said to his son Xerxes, the fourth king here of verse 2, the rich, powerful king, make sure you deal with the Greeks. Well, in 480 BC, King Xerxes of Persia marched against Athens with its reputed, if you can believe Herodotus, the largest standing army in history. Herodotus says he took five million men across the Hellespont from, if you can think of it, from mainland Turkey into Greece and came against Athens, where the Athenians were utterly terrified and they fled the city and ran into the hills. Xerxes was so furious that he couldn't destroy the Greek army because, of course, the city was depopulated, that he burned the entire cities of Athens. He, he raised it to the ground, which meant their libraries their temples, their museums were completely trashed. The Greeks said that that wasn't a fair fight. And therefore, from that moment forward, the Greeks said, we will one day revenge our loss upon the Persians. And so every Greek mum would bring up her son and say, well, maybe you will be the ruler, the conqueror that takes Greek vengeance upon Persia. Well, that takes you to verse 3. Now, there are about 13 kings in the Persian Empire, 
You've got down to the fourth king in verse 2, or the fourth king after um, Darius the Mede. The next eight or so kings are completely omitted, and we jump straight to verse 3, because verse 3 is the Greek response to the sacking of Athens by Xerxes. A mighty king, this is a mighty Greek king, shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. This is a reference to Alexander the Great. Now, how do we know it's Alexander the Great? Well, because look at verse 4. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And you know that when Alexander died, his kingdom was split between his four generals. So it is Alexander in verse 3, the great king of Greece. And Alexander's kingdom will be divided between the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity. So his own descendants wouldn't rule. His four generals would take over and they would rule the kingdom instead of him. And this is how it worked. Alexander left Greece, as you can see in the top left-hand corner there, and he would fight three great battles and conquer the Persian Empire. The Battle of Granicus in 334 BC, the Battle of Issus in 333, and the Battle of Gorgamela in 331 BC. You might remember from Daniel chapter 8 that the way Daniel described it in that chapter was a ram with one horn like a unicorn coming against the goat. And it said he met the goat at a river. That's because those three battles, Granicus, Issus and Gorgami, were all fought at rivers. The Persian Empire was killed beside a river. That's why Daniel 8 describes this ram coming against the goat. Sorry, the, yes, the ram coming against the goat at a river in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 6. But whilst Alexander would take the empire, he wouldn't keep it. And therefore, what happened after Alexander's death was the empire was split between his four generals. Cassander got Greece. Lysimachus got Thrace. Seleucus got Syria and Babylonia. And Ptolemy, Ptolemy Sota, got Egypt. And these were the four winds, you see, that Alexander's kingdom was divided between. And it says in verse 4 that his posterity wouldn't get it, though he did have a son, a son called, you wouldn't believe it, Alexander. Alexander's wife was called Roxanne, and she had a son called Alexander. And when Alexander died, Roxanne and Alexander Jr. were given into the control of Cassander in Greece, because, of course, they went straight back to Greece. Well, what did Cassander do? Immediately killed them both. The last thing any of these four generals wanted uh, was a descendant of Alexander the Great, lurking around the Greek Empire somewhere. They all wanted the control of the empire themselves. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't fall to Alexander's posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. His descendants wouldn't get it, others would get it, and those four were the four main names that inherited Alexander's kingdom. Well, verse 5 now commences the next great section. This is the Syrian Wars. And these, this is going to be the battle between, or the battles, plural, between the king of the north and the king of the south. And you can see here, we've, des we've described Seleucus here as the first king of the north, and Ptolemy, the first king of the south. North and south, as I explained, in relation to Israel. So, of the four divisions of the Greek empire, 
These were the two most important, the king of the north and the king of the south, the, the Syria-Babylonian area and the Egyptian area. They were the, they were the first and second largest of the four divisions that came after Alexander. Well, verse 5 says that the king of the south should be strong and one of his princes, and he should be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion should be a great dominion. Now, what you need to do from this point forward in Daniel 11, and you'll have to do it in your own time, is colour in the he's and the him's because it doesn't, in these verses, it doesn't tell you who it's talking about. It says he'll do this and he'll do that and this will happen to him and that will happen to him. And you never know which him. Is it the king of the north or the king of the south we're talking about? Easiest way to do it is to get Elpis Israel. Page 398, commence his brother Elpis Israel, page 398. Brother Thomas explains every verse, word by word, and who the he's and the him's are, whether it's the king of the north or the king of the south you're talking about. So pick two colours. I've used orange and green, and you can, you can colour on the hymns and the he's and therefore identify who the verse is speaking about. Now, in this verse, in verse 5, it's actually not even well translated in the authorised version. Here's the, here's the New International Version for verse 5. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he. And he will rule his own kingdom with great power. So what's it talking about? Well, the king of the south of verse 5 is a fellow called Ptolemy Sota. He was one of Alexander's generals and he inherited Egypt in 323 BC. Now we're talking Egypt here. Don't think pharaohs and pyramids. Think Greeks. Think Cleopatra. That's the kind of Egypt we're talking about. So 323 BC, Ptolemy Sota inherits Egypt after the death of Alexander. He was the king of the south. And one of his princes, it says, or one of his commanders, well, that was a man called Seleucus Nicator. One of those commanders of Ptolemy Sota would become a ruler in his own right, and his kingdom would become even more powerful than the kingdom of Egypt. Well, you can see it there. Seleucus Nicator took Syria, Babylonia, the yellow area, which was even more powerful than the blue area of Egypt on that map. That's simply what it's saying. He should be strong and have his own dominion. That's what the verse goes on and says. So Seleucus Nicator became the king of the north in about 312 B.C. Simple. And in the end of years, they, that is the north and the south, shall join themselves together. For the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. Neither shall he stand nor his arm. But she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. So you see, you need to know whether it's the red he or the orange he in the case of my colouring scheme. But what's the saying in verse 6? Unbelievably detailed. At the end of years, there's going to be an alliance between the north and south. They don't like each other. But there's going to be a peace treaty. It's the year BC 255. 58 years or something after Seleucus Nicator took over the, being the king of the north. The northern kingdom 
is no longer under the control of Seleucus Nicada. It's under the control of his grandson, a fellow called Antiochus Theos. You can see him there in the middle of the orange. Antiochus Theos is the ruler of the northern kingdom. He is now the king of the north. Antiochus Theos, 255 BC. The southern kingdom is under the control of Ptolemy Soter's son, a fellow called Ptolemy Philadelphus. So he's now, the second Ptolemy is ruling Egypt. And things were hostile between them, so they made a peace treaty. And it says, the king's daughter of the south, well, who's that? Well, that's Berenice. Berenice, you can see her there, the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus. She shall come to the king of the north. Well, she went north from Egypt and she married Antiochus Theos. Now, there was a problem with that. Antiochus Theos was already married. He was married to a lady called Laodicea. You can see her there. It was her name that became the basis of the name of the city, Laodicea, a Greek city. Laodicea was married to Antiochus Theos, but Antiochus Theos wanted to make peace with Egypt, so he ditched, he divorced Laodicea, and he married Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus. All good. Well, not really, because Laodicea wasn't very happy with that, and she wasn't a nice person. These are horrible people, the whole lot of them, but she was, well, she was actually very, very bad. Well, Berenice comes to the king of the north, and he marries her, but she shall not retain the power of her arm. Berenice retained influence over Antiochus Theos so long as her father lived. Her father was the arm. She only retained power over her new husband as long as Ptolemy Philadelphus was still alive. As soon as Ptolemy died, Antiochus divorced Berenice and he took back Laodicea. But it says, neither shall he stand nor his arm. Just because he divorced Berenice and took back his first wife, Antiochus Theos was not safe. She was nasty, I told you. Neither shall he stand, Antiochus Theos, nor his arm, that is, his son by Berenice. They won't, lo- they won't survive this. What happened? Laodicea straight away poisoned that little son, the unnamed son of Antiochus, Theos, and Berenice. Why would she do that? Well, because she wants her own son, Callinicus, to be the next king. That's why. So she poisoned this, this second boy. But it then goes on and says that she shall be given up. Berenice was then killed by Laodicea. And they that brought her, all the Egyptian attendants, the royal escort that took Berenice from Egypt up to Syria, were also killed by Laodicea. And he that begat her, that is, he that she brought forth, this little son. And he that strengthened her, Antiochus Theos himself, was killed by Laodicea. So she wiped out everyone. Why? So that she could become the queen mother. She, her son, Callinicus, now became the next king of the north because she killed everybody else. Well, what do you think the Egyptians thought of that? Verse 7. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate. Now, what this is saying is, this is a branch out of Berenice's roots. Well, you can see Berenice on the screen. She's from Egypt. What would her root be? 
Well, her father, Ptolemy Philadelphus. Well, what would be a branch from her root? Her brother, Ptolemy Eugenides. He's furious in verse 7 that his sister got killed. So out of a branch of her root shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army. This is the south now going to attack the north. And shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against him, and shall prevail. Ptolemy Philadelphus, sorry, Ptolemy Eugenides now attacks Callinicus, the king of the north. And shall also carry away captives into Egypt, their gods with their princes and their precious vessels of silver and of gold. And he, that is the king of the south, shall continue more years than the king of the north. Seleucus Callinicus died in 226 BC. Ptolemy Euergetes died five years later in 221 BC, victorious in battle, carrying an enormous spoil, you see, in verse 8, from Syria back down to Egypt. And the story concludes in verse 9, so the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return to his own land, all happy, having avenged the death of his sister and having enriched himself from the treasure house of the king of the north. That was the first of the Syrian wars. We've just done verses 5 to 9, you see. The first Syrian war. Well, I'm not going to go through the rest. The point is, that's the detail of Daniel chapter 11. It's name by name, event by event, year by year, all written, obviously, before it happened. And the detail of Daniel 11 is so strong that some commentators, even some Bible dictionaries, have suggested that this is not a prophecy. It's a history. How could anybody write? There's nothing else like this in the Bible, they say. Nothing of this level of detail. How could anybody write this before it happened as a prophecy? It's more likely to have been written after it occurred as a history. The problem is, look, it's happening in 160 BC. When do you think Daniel lived? Daniel lived in the days of the Babylonian Empire, 600 BC. So they say, well, it was, obviously wasn't written by Daniel. Really? The fact of the matter is, this proves more than anything the inspiration of the Bible. And the fact is it was written by Daniel because it's included in the Septuagint, which was compiled many, many years before these verses were fulfilled. Remarkable. Well, that's verses 5 to 9. Verses 10 to 12, Antiochus the Great, the next king of the north, now attacks Ptolemy Eugenides. So verse 9, the Egyptians are very happy. They've just won the war. They've taken a whole lot of treasure back down south. Well, what do you think the north thought of that? They weren't impressed at all. And so now commences the wars between the north and south. So much for the peace treaty. That commences the wars now between the north and the south. That was verses 10 to 12. The next king of the north attacks the south and is soundly defeated. Verse 13 to 19, Antiochus the Great again attacks the south, this time successfully. The problem was a new empire was beginning to arise in the world. And the Egyptians could see that they were, well, you saw the size of the empires on the map, the Egyptian empire was nowhere near the size of the empire of the king of the north, and therefore they couldn't match the military might of the king of the north. And so what did they do in Egypt? They appealed to Rome. 
Rome was a rising power. And, and Rome starts to get a little mention in these, in these verses. In verse 14, the, the word robber, robbers appears. It's a reference to Rome. In verse 18, the word prince appears. It's a reference to Rome. And Rome starts to sneak into this record. It's really a record between two divisions of Alexander's broken empire fighting each other. But the weaker of those two divisions, the Egyptian division, begins to ask for assistance from Rome. Now, of course, Rome wants to be a world empire, so she's very happy to be invited into other people's business because once she's there, she never leaves. But what do you do if you're Egypt? You're going to get whacked. You might as well ask Rome. At least you can survive, and that's what they do. The problem with verses 13 to 19 was that when the Syrians come and attack the Egyptians... You understand, I mean, Syrian Greeks attacking Egyptian Greeks. Uh, it doesn't go so well. Syria started to run into Rome. They're trying to expand their empire, and they fight Rome a couple of times, and they lose the Battle of Thermopylae, the Battle of Magnesia, and Rome puts them under enormous war reparations. Rome fines them, and so they have to pay uh, tax to Rome which takes you to verse 20, the tax ban. This is one of the kings of the north, Seleucus Philippator. And uh, he taxed his whole empire, his whole realm, for 12 years and finally paid off the bill to Rome, only to be, be then killed by his prime minister, a fellow called Heliodorus. Verses 21 to 32 is the next great stage of this war. And it's the most famous of all the kings of the north. Antiochus Epiphanes, the worst, the most ruthless of all the kings of the north, he now marches his army down to Egypt. In fact, it's verse 30 that sort of tells or alludes to the story. Antiochus Epiphanes has got the entire army of the Seleucid Empire and he's marched on Egypt and he's warred and he's taken every city apart from the city of Alexandria and he lines up his entire army against the city of Alexandria and once he's taken it, he has taken Egypt. And so that one of the divisions of the Greek Empire has gobbled up the other. But as he's about to attack, this old fellow comes out of the city of Alexandria and comes to meet him. An old man on a walking stick. Clearly, not a Goliath, not a military figure, but they know each other. Antiochus Epiphanes knows this old man. The name of that old man was... Lucius Papilius Lanus. And they knew each other because Lanus was from Rome and Antiochus Epiphanes went to boarding school in Rome. And uh, Lanus said, what are you doing? And Epiphanes said, well, look around, pal. It's pretty obvious what we're going to do. I'm going to take the city of Alexandria. And he said, ah! You see, that's the problem, Antiochus. You're not going to do that. I think you should turn around and go home. And Antiochus Epiphany said, well, the problem is I'm not going to do that either. I am going to take it, and then I entirely control all of the region. Well, Epiphany, you just got to understand that the Egyptians have got to deal with us. And so if you were to attack Alexandria you'd be attacking Rome. You've already lost a couple of wars. How many more would you like to lose? 
And Epiphany said, hmm, that's interesting. I'll have to consult with my generals. At which point, Lanus got his walking stick and drew around him in the sand a circle and said, no problem, make your decision before you leave the circle. Which has given rise to us saying a line in the sand. Well, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes knew he could not take on the emerging power of Rome, so he had to retreat. But whoa, was he furious? Was he furious? What did he do? Well, he's going to march straight back to Antioch in Syria. But on the way, he decides to vent his spleen in Jerusalem. He kills thousands and thousands of people. He sacrifices pigs in the temple. And so furious were the Jews that it began the Maccabean Wars, 166 to 164 BC. Judas Maccabeus was from the high priestly family. The Maccabees were priests. He was called Judas the Hammer. These are the days when the Greeks were going to battle with war elephants. Judas's brother, Eleazar Avaran, was killed fighting elephants. How would you fight an elephant? Well, you get underneath it and open it up. Well, the problem with that is it can fall on you, which is what happened to him. But these are, these are the wars between the Jews and the Greeks. Judas Maccabeus' army was a guerrilla army. They couldn't, they couldn't line up man to man against the Greeks on a flat battlefield. They'd be destroyed instantly. But from the hills and the clefts in the rock, they could fire down upon the Greeks, which they did time after time, and for the most part defeated the Greeks of the king of the north in the land of Judea. Well, that brings you now down to verse 36 of Daniel 11. And the king, it says, shall do according to his will and shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvellous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Now, the significant thing about this verse is that it just says the king. It doesn't say the king of the north. It doesn't say the king of the south. Why not? Because we're now talking about the Roman Empire. In uh, 168 BC, Rome took Greece. In 133, it took Thrace, the orange area. In 65, it took the area of Syria and Babylonia. And in 30 BC, it took Egypt. So by the time you get to verse 36, which, as I mentioned earlier, is in fact in the days of Constantine, there's one king over the entire... There is no north and south. Rome owns everything. And so this is the Roman king. But the, the reason we've got such a jump in history from, what, 160 BC to 300-odd AD is because this is Rome in the east. This is Constantinople. This is, this is the days in which Constantine... Christianized the empire and moved the Christian, the Christian capital to Constantinople. And so the king of verse 36 is not just the Roman Caesar or the Roman emperor, but it's the Roman emperor who lives in the east, where the Greek empire was, in the eastern capital, Constantinople. The king over all the empire. The first Christian emperor of Rome, of course, was Constantine the Great. Well, that takes us to verse 40. We've got the emergent, we've got Rome now from verses 36 to verse 39, and then verse 40. And at the time of the end, 
shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships and so forth. Now that's curious because we're back to the king of the south and the king of the north. So what's, what's going on? The king of the north and the king of the south were two divisions of, of the empire after the death of Alexander the Great, based in Syria and in Egypt. Rome took everything, as we've explained, so that in verse 36, there's only one king. There is no north and south. Rome owns everything, north, south, east, and west. But by the time you get back to verse 40, we've got the kings of the north and south again. But clearly, if this is a chronology of history, Greece falls to Rome. Rome falls, but verse 40, Greece doesn't rise again after Rome. So what's going on in verse 40? Well, it's the time of the end, as verse 40 describes. Now, the time of the end, well, is our time, because look what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 40 of Daniel 11 says it's the time of the end. Verse 1 of chapter 12, at that time. Which time? At the time of the end of chapter 11 and verse 40. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince that standeth for the children of thy people. This shall be a time of trouble such as never was. Verse 2, and many of them that sleep in the dust shall... It's the resurrection. Oh, so the time of the end of verse 40 is the last epoch of man's dominion. It's the, it's the time that Christ returns. And what you're reading between verses 40 and verse 45 is the preparation and event of Armageddon. Hmm. Okay, but back to my question. Why have we got the king of the north and the king of the south in verse 40? They were, they were the names of Greek or Greek empires or Greek divisions of the empire. Well, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him? The last time the king of the south was mentioned was way back in verse 29. It was the, power control, the Greek power controlling Egypt. This king of the south shall push at him. Who is the him of verse 40? Well, if you, tra- if you just start reading up from verse 40, in verse 39 you see the word he appear a number of times. Well, it's the same chap. The him of verse 40 is the he of verse 39. Or the he and the his of verse 38. Or the he of verse 37, which would be the he and the himself of verse 36, which is the king of verse 36. Now that's interesting. So what that means is that the him of verse 40 that's getting pushed at is the king of verse 36. Who's that? It's the ruler of Constantinople, which once upon a time was a Roman king. Once upon a time was in fact Constantine himself. But after the Turks took Turkey and Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks, the him of verse 40 would be Turkish the Turkish Empire, which controlled Constantinople in the last days. Wow, so what are you reading when you read verse 40? You're reading about a latter-day king of the south, that is a foreign power controlling Egypt, attacking him, the power controlling Turkey, or the power ruling Constantinople. And then the king of the north, this would be a latter-day power controlling the entire area of the Seleucid Empire. What's that? Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, a latter-day power controlling that area. He would also push it, Turkey, 
and come with a whirlwind and chariots and horsemen and a huge army. That's what you're reading about in verse 40. So let me be clear. What does the phrase king of the south mean? It means a foreign power controlling Egypt. If it was just the Egyptians in Egypt, they'd just be called Egypt. But when you read the phrase king of the south, you're reading of a foreign power controlling Egypt, be it Greece or anyone else. What does the king of the north mean? It means a foreign power controlling all those countries of the ancient Seleucid Empire, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. If it was just Syria, it would be called Syria. Like that is to say, if the Syrians controlled their own country, it would be called Syria, as it is many, many times in the Old Testament. But it's not. It's the king of the north. It's the king of the south. So we've got foreign powers on those two land masses going at each other, and they're pushing at him, which is Turkey in the last days. Most fascinating. So what's happening? At the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him? We've got a foreign power in control of Egypt pushing at Turkey. Now, this is what happened. In 1453, the Roman Empire in the east, which was called the Byzantine Empire, which was con controlled from Constantinople, it fell to the Ottoman Turks. And they took Turkey, and Constantinople became Muslim. Turkey controlled all of that area, and the Turkish Empire was enormous at that particular time in history. But Revelation 16, verse 12, said that in the last days, Turkey would dry up, and so Turkey did begin to dry up from about the mid-19th century, meaning its empire began to shrink. Egypt gained independence from Turkey. Britain, which was a very, very strong player in the world in the 19th century, who had its own empire, actually took control of Egypt. Britain bought shares in about 1860 in the Suez Canal Company. By 1882, they had moved into Egypt to protect Egypt from Turkey. What that meant was that we had a foreign power, by about 1880, a foreign power in control of Egypt. As soon as that happens, that power becomes the king of the south. Egypt was no longer under the control of the Egyptians, it was under the control of the British and Britain became the king of the south. And the king of the south, in verse 40, pushed at him, pushed at Turkey. And in 1917, in the First World War, after the failure at Gallipoli, the British launched their campaign against the Turkish Empire from Egypt and drove up Palestine and took Palestine off the Turks in World War I and dried up Turkey, the Turkish Empire, back to the country of Turkey, which you see today. So the push that you're reading about in verse 40 by the king of the south at him is in fact the British attack on the Turkish Empire in 1917 in World War I where the Brits took Palestine from Turkey. That's what happened in the first portion of verse 40 of Daniel chapter 11. I've just jumped a couple of slides. Here's how Brother Thomas describes these sorts of events in Elpis Israel. Page 445, look at this. The lion power, that is Britain, will not, will not interest itself in behalf of the subjects of God's kingdom from pure generosity, piety toward God or love of Israel. The British don't care about Palestine because they're godly or righteous. 
God who rules the world and marks out the bounds of habitation for the nations will make Britain a gainer by the transaction. She helps the Jews because there's money in it. He will bring her rulers to see the desirableness of Egypt, Ethiopia and Sheba, which they will probably be induced by force of circumstances probably to take possession of. So Brother Thomas says, eh, I think Britain's going to take control of Israel. They will, however, before the Battle of Armageddon, be compelled to retreat from Egypt and Ethiopia. For the king of the north shall stretch forth his hand upon the land of Egypt, which shall not escape, and the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now what's Brother Thomas's point here? He says, hmm, Britain's going to own Egypt and is going to retreat from Egypt. It's going to give Egypt back to the Egyptians. Why? Because the Bible says that when the king of the north attacks, he attacks Egypt. He doesn't attack the king of the south. Which means Egypt is back in the control of the Egyptians. If Britain still controlled Egypt, it would say in Daniel 11 that the king of the north will attack the king of the south. Because the king of the south is a foreign power in control of Egypt. So Brother Thomas, who realised that Britain was in control of Egypt, says, hmm, as far as Daniel 11 is concerned, Britain's going to have to leave Egypt. Because it says in Daniel 11 that the king of the north attacks Egypt. It doesn't say that the king of the north attacks the king of the south, you see, which means Egypt's back under its own control, which means Britain must have left Egypt. This is remarkable deduction by Brother Thomas, based, you might say, purely on a careful reading of Daniel chapter 11. But here's the significance for you and me, young people. You see in verse 40 it says, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and then the king of the north shall come against him. We're sitting on the colon right now. That's where we are in this prophecy. Because the king of the south, which was Britain, has pushed at Turkey. But the king of the north has not yet come against Turkey. There has been no other invasion against Turkey since World War I. So the next invasion against Turkey will be by the King of the North. Well, who's the King of the North? Well, you know, you say the King of the North is Russia. And that's true when you compare Daniel 11 to Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11 both describe a great power coming from the North invading Israel at the time of the end or at the latter days. The Libyans and Ethiopians are with him. You read that in both chapters, Daniel 11 verse 5, sorry, Daniel 11 verse 43, Ezekiel 38 verse 5. But they're suddenly interrupted, this big northern invasion, and they're destroyed on the mountains of Israel. Both chapters record that. And so the battle of Ezekiel 38 and the battle of Daniel 11 are therefore the same battle because they're too similar to be two different battles. What we're saying, therefore, is that the king of the north, in verse 40, is Russia. How do we know? By comparison with Ezekiel 38. But that's not what Daniel 11 would describe it as. What does Daniel 11 mean when it says the king of the north? It means a foreign power controlling, controlling the ancient territories of the king of the north. So let me put it like this. Here's the king of the north. That yellow area, a foreign power in control of those countries becomes the king of the north. Once upon a time, it was the Greeks. We're saying in the future, it'll be the Russians. What that means is this. Russia must take control of Syria, of Iraq, of Iran, and of Afghanistan in order to become the king of the north. 
And once she becomes the king of the north, she attacks him, Turkey. And once she attacks Turkey, as you can see in the subsequent verses, she invades Egypt. And once she invades Egypt, she's interrupted. And then she goes back and invades Israel and stays there and dies there. That's the story of the latter verses of Daniel chapter 11. That's what's going to happen. So before Russia can attack Turkey, she's going to take control of all those other countries because unless she's got control of those countries, she's not the king of the north. She's just Russia. She's just Gog, you see? Because the king of the north is a foreign power in control of the old Seleucid territory. I'm just going to miss a couple... Well, I'll just tell you those slides. Here's an interesting thing that you observe in the world today. All of the countries around the Middle East are Muslim countries. But there are two kinds of Muslims. There's Shiite Muslims and there's Sunni Muslims. Shia Islam, or Shiite Muslims, are basically controlled from Iran. Sunni Muslims are basically controlled from Saudi Arabia. They are hostile to each other. They don't like each other. It so happens that the Shiite Muslims are on the north and the Sunni Muslims are on the south. The Muslims that will support Russia, like the Iranian, Iraqi Muslims, are on the north, where the king of the north will exist. And the Sunni Muslims are on the south, who will oppose them. Where Egypt is, for example, where the king of the south used to exist. So, in fact, the entire Muslim world is polarised between north and south, just as you might expect from Daniel chapter 11. In the year 2000, there were elections in America. Now, this is a little bit before your time, but I remember it well. And the remarkable thing was that the race was between George Bush, George Bush Jr., and Al Gore. And of the hundreds of millions of people in America that voted... Bush won the election by 537 votes. And there was all sorts of allegations about vote rigging and miscounting and all sorts of things. But of course it went away and Bush became the president. Well, that was in the year 2000. What happened in 2001? The 11th of September 2001, the Trade Centre got bombed and America invaded two countries and took two governments. America took Iraq and took control of it and she took Afghanistan and took hey hey that's two of the four countries of the ancient territory of the king of the north if America had also taken Iran and Syria she would have become the king of the north because the king of the north is a foreign power in control of that territory well America never did she's now retreated from Iraq she's now retreated from Afghanistan someone else is in there Russia has now taken Syria. Russia is moving into Iraq. Russia already has Iran in the bag. And Afghanistan, well, Afghanistan's a loose cannon, really. America just left a month or two ago, and Afghanistan's a disaster. What did America do in Afghanistan? Well, they occupied the place for 20 years, and then they moved out, and the Taliban took over in about a week. Like, the whole country fell. So the American army trained 300,000 Afghan soldiers and as soon as the Taliban raised its head and pointed a gun at them, they all wilted, they wouldn't fight for their own country and the Taliban took over. And this is a news article from July 27 this year about Afghanistan. Republican Jim Banks says, we now know 
that due to the negligence of this administration, that is the Biden administration, the Taliban now has access to over $85 billion worth of US military equipment. I mean, everything America left there is now in the hands of the Taliban. That includes 75,000 vehicles, 200 aeroplanes and helicopters, 600,000 small arms and light weapons. The Taliban now has more Black Hawk helicopters than 85% of the countries in the world. The Taliban. Now, you just ask yourself, are these uh, responsible, peace-loving people? Well, they've got more Black Hawks than 85% of the rest of the world. But they don't just have weapons, they also have night vision goggles, body armour and medical supplies. And here's what we just learned again in the briefing that we just walked out of. This administration still has no plan to get all that stuff back. So the Americans have just equipped the Taliban. And the Taliban are not responsible people. But Mr Putin says, hmm, America's left, we're stepping up to the plate. As the Taliban takes over in Afghanistan, Russia has appointed itself as a mediator in the war-torn country, underlying its position as a key stakeholder and hardly hiding its desire to expand its influence in the region to fill the power vacuum left by the retreating US military. Can you see a situation where Russia could become the king of the north? All she's got to do is take the four countries in the territory of the ancient Seleucid Empire. Someone's got to do it because the last day's portion of Daniel 11 says that at some point in the future, surrounding the time that Christ returns, the king of the north will push at Turkey and take her. By comparison with Ezekiel 38, you know that it's Gog that's going to do the invasion of Israel in the last days, and therefore you know that it's Gog that's going to become the king of the north. And look what she's doing. It's all fitting, isn't it? It's all happening exactly as you might expect. And as far as Iran is concerned, as you know, Russia is a guard already to Iran in the language of Ezekiel 38 and verse 7. So these countries are falling into the control of Russia. Russia becomes the king of the north. Russia attacks Turkey. Turkey falls to Russia. Then Russia goes after Egypt. Egypt falls to Russia. Then Russia goes after Israel. Israel falls to Russia, Christ comes. That's the story. That's what happens in Daniel chapter 11. But let me show you something interesting. If you go back to verse 10 of Daniel 11, there's a key word. It's the word overflow. And it's a common feature of the king of the north that he always overflows. And it's just simply a reference to the fact that the king of the north's army was the biggest of the four divisions of the Greek empire. And whenever he invades, he invades with an overwhelming force. Well, it says in verse 10, But his son shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. The sons mentioned here are the sons of Seleucus Callinicus, the king of the north. And this is an invasion of the king of the south in 219 BC. But the characteristic language of the king of the north is that he overflows with an overwhelming force, like a dam bursting. You read the same language in verse 22. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him. Here's the king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes, defeating Ptolemy Philometer in 170 BC by overflowing and drowning him with military supremacy. Verse 26, the same thing again. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his, this is the northern army, shall 
overflow and many shall fall down slain. This is Antiochus Epiphanes attacking Egypt in 169 BC by overflowing. Why am I making the point? Look at verse 40. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at Turkey, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Chariots, horsemen, many ships, he'll enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. What we're saying is that the invasion by Russia in the last days against Israel and the surrounding countries is a classic invasion of the king of the north. Now, why does Russia invade? Well, because of verse 43. Israel gets caught up in it, but it's really an invasion against Egypt because, of course, the king of the north didn't just invade Israel. She invades the king of the south, which in ancient times was the land of Egypt. Well, the same thing here in Daniel 11 in the last verses. The king of the north is actually going after Egypt, and he takes Egypt and only then comes back and settles in Israel. But the reason he attacked, well, look at verse 42. He shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So there's the target. Now, what does he want in Egypt? Verse 43. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. Now, why does he want that so much? Well, because you see, verse 43 is actually the companion verse of verse 8. Because do you remember that detailed history we we spoke of at the very commencement of our talk when Berenice went up north and she got killed and Laodicea killed everyone else and then there was an invasion by the Egyptians, a reprisal, and they came and they they knocked over the king of the north and they took all that money back south? Well, in verse 8 it says that the king of the south shall carry away captives into Egypt, their gods, their princes, with all their precious vessels of silver and gold. And what you're reading of in verse 43 is the response to that success. And in the last days, the king of the north goes into Egypt and takes it all back. You see, thousands of years later, 2,200 years later, the king of the north finally goes and takes all those precious things of Egypt back. There's the poetry of the, of the chapter. A great southern victory in verse 8 is matched by a great northern reprisal in verse 43. And then, chapter 12, verse 1, Michael stands up. Christ has come, and Christ responds. In the last verse of Daniel 11, verse 45, Gog comes to his end. So let's finish. Let's summarise. What do you expect to see happening next? You expect to see Russia take the four countries of Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. Once that happens, she will attack Turkey and take Turkey. Once that happens, she'll migrate south through Israel into Egypt and take Egypt. Once that happens, she migrates back to Jerusalem, plants the tabernacle of her palace between the two seas in the city of Jerusalem, and then Christ returns with the saints. The Battle of Armageddon is had, or is, is, is finished, And Christ then rules from Zion. But the significant point there is that when Christ does do that and destroys Gog on the mountains of Israel in verse 45, the judgment seat's already happened. The bride is already immortal. Christ's army is already furnished. So then the question is, in the sequence of events we've just described, 
at what point in that sequence does Christ come to the household to be prepared for when they have to destroy Gog on the mountains of Israel in verse 45 of Daniel 11? And the answer is, according to Brother Thomas, 10 years before the Battle of Armageddon in verse 45 of Daniel 11, Christ returns to the ecclesia to judge it. So the only question you've really got to answer is, how long do you think it would take for Russia to take the four countries we've described and then take Turkey and then Egypt and then Jerusalem? How long would all that take? Subtract 10 years and Christ is here. What I'm simply saying is, you shouldn't expect to see the whole story of Daniel 11. But the part that you can see, which is in your newspapers right here and now today, is a sure sign that Christ is coming and coming very soon.